On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Quasar One, don't you know that I touched the sun just for you, just for you. Quasar One, don't you know that I touched the sun just for you, just for you. With a humming. Start with a humming. We'll do it quite a long one because it's not fading or something. This is Sheffield. Not quite what you expected, perhaps, but all these delightful scenes and many more, quite as picturesque, and acres of moorland are within the city boundary. A city not of dreaming spires, but of flaming furnaces, powerful steam hammers, great foundries and huge rolling mills. A city of over half a million inhabitants, the fifth largest city in England. Right, when you're set, this will be take two. Do it later. Put one voice on. <clears throat> Kimberly Barrington Frost was born in Sheffield in 1934 to a pair of musical parents. His mother performed the piano accompaniment to silent films at the local theater, and his father was a skilled tenor, and Frost grew up singing and playing guitar from an early age. In the mid-50s, he was drafted by the Royal Air Force, where he rose through the ranks to become a physical training instructor. He eventually left the military and started working as an HVAC installer, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, while performing in jazz clubs at night. In 1960, he met a waitress named Dorothy, a former beauty queen from Felixstowe, and three weeks after they met, they were married. I went to um, work for my family's uh, friend's uh, restaurant in Felixstowe. One day, uh, I was working in the restaurant, this man walks in, and he walks straight up to me, and he said, um, hello, I've been looking for you. I said, oh. He said, yes, I've been looking for you for a long time. I said, oh, really? So he said, yes. Um, and I'm not going to go away now. I found you. But he was very unusual. 
his face, he was very smooth skinned and tanned. He had a very silvery white suit on, very lightweight and a white shirt. And his hair was sort of blonded. When do you finish work? So I said, well, I'm working late this evening. And I only just lived two or three doors up the road. Of course I was intrigued and of course he was so unusual. I'd never seen anybody like him before. And um, so we walked along the beach to walk me home and he sang a song to me and he sang always stay as sweet as you are don't let a thing ever change you and he had this beautiful voice stay as sweet as you are don't let a soul rearrange you don't ever lose all the charms you possess your loveliness darling the way you he said, can we go and see your mother and your family? And I said, well, yes. So the next day I took him along to see my mother. And we got there and she had tea all laid for us and everything. Then he said to my mother, I want to marry your daughter. Three weeks later, we were married in the church by special license. And we had a wedding. And then I went off to London with him. And he turned out to be a jazz singer and he was singing in nightclubs in London. I find myself in London with this man, him singing beautiful jazz, beautiful singing, everything, and things were hard. It was hard. I had to get a job in London, which was very hard for me because living in a village and having the life that I'd led, hardly being in civilization, really, only when I went to Felixstowe. And he then had to get a job because jazz singing didn't pay. Uh, show business is not very good and he got a job and he got a job in a heating ventilating sort of company. Eventually the company that Frost was working for offered him the opportunity to open his own branch in Edinburgh, Scotland but the company went under not long after at which point Frost went into the HVAC business for himself. So we packed up and went off to Edinburgh and we got up there and within a month or so uh, the, the company went broke. He said, we'll start our own company. I know about uh, design, intro, you know, insulation, heating, all sorts. I've been selling it now, I can do it. So we opened a company, he, he designed booklets and we designed it all. We got offices and we decorated them ourselves. And uh, when I was 21, at nine, half past nine at night, I was decorating the offices with him and, he, and I said to him, my goodness, I'm 21 today. And he said, never. I said, I am. The Frost returned to his hometown of Sheffield in 1966 or 67 and purchased a home which they remodeled as a Roman villa. At some point, Frost mentioned to his wife that as he walked past shop windows, he would catch a glimpse of his reflection, but with a bald head. He wondered what it meant. One weekend, he said, look, he said, some strange things have been happening to me. Um, I keep walking past the shops and things, and I see reflection in the window, and it looks like there's a spaceman there with a round helmet on. He said, I have a feeling that I've got to shave my hair off. I think it's me without any hair. 
and he just in the end became the man with the shaven head and everybody just took it that he was that man and it did suit him actually it really did suit him the only problem was he wanted me to shave all mine off and my mother said well look come on you know i think that would be going a bit too far and so i didn't then one day they were in a bookstore together and dorothy remembers quote i was attracted to the egyptian section and found this book with Selkhet on the cover, the goddess of cures and protections. I thought she looked like me, and so did Barry. In it, he read that Ramesses II was the first pharaoh to shave his hair off. Then we had our names. I pulled out this book, and it had this figure on the front, and it was an Egyptian figure, but it was gold, and it was tiny, and it had its hair different to Egyptian, and I had blonde long hair and I was always tanned and um, and I thought the features looked like me um, I, and I said oh I like this but he said oh you think that looks like you don't you and I said well um, you know I said well it is tiny and it it doesn't look at it I just I just think it's it's nice, isn't it? I'd like to see, you know, the, read the book. And so he said, well, look, we'll get that book. I like it. it I think it is like you, actually, um, very much. So he said, get the book. And we got it home. And he just was reading through. And then he was reading about Ramesses II. And he said, Ramesses II was the first pharaoh to shave all his hair off. you've had your hair shaven off two years so uh, so he said oh that's it then he said I'm Ramesses and you're Selkut you see the pair had plans to launch a music career and now they would attempt to do so but calling themselves Ramesses and Selkut of course they told a different origin story to the music press that one day in 1968 Barrington Frost was driving to meet with a client when he was suddenly visited by the spirit of the great Egyptian pharaoh, Ramesses, the third ruler of the 19th dynasty, who reigned from 1303 B.C. to 1213 B.C., one of the most celebrated, most powerful pharaohs of the New Kingdom, which was the most powerful period for ancient Egypt. During the 13th century B.C., Ancient Egypt was recovering from the turbulent Amarna period that had greatly weakened the empire. The most notable pharaoh during this period, Ramesses II, restored Egypt to its former glory and re-established its dominance over the region. He maintained stability within the empire, preserved its borders, and built immense monuments throughout Egypt. His unprecedented 66-year-long reign and countless achievements immortalized him throughout the world as Ramesses the Great. Ramesses had over 200 wives and over 100 children, most of whom he outlived. Towards the end of his life, Ramesses suffered from artery hardening, dental decay, and arthritis. After a reign of 66 years, he died in 1213 BC at the age of 90 and was buried in the Valley of the Kings. Frost, as the story went, was instructed, while seated behind the wheel of his vehicle, that he was the Pharaoh's reincarnation, and he must spread the Pharaoh's message, 
via a music career. He subsequently shaved his head and began dressing eccentrically in long, silk robes. The next step for Frost was to change his name to that of his, quote, original self, Ramesses, and try to get a recording contract so he could spread the word. And, incredibly so, he did manage to obtain a recording contract with CBS and released a single, only in the UK, in 1968, recorded together with his wife and under the moniker Ramesses and Selket, produced by veteran producer Mike Smith. Tracks featured were Crazy One with Mind's Eye on the B-side. There's a story out there that the original title of Crazy One was Quasar One and that there was a misunderstanding with the operator at the record company with the resultant single having the different misinterpreted title, Quasar having been misheard as crazy. This can only be partially true because if you listen to the original 1968 single version, they clearly do say Crazy One, not Quasar One. Maybe it was changed from Quasar to Crazy because of a miscommunication or at the request of the record label, or perhaps it was changed from Crazy to Quasar later on, and then this story was developed as an explanation. Who knows? But they do sing Crazy One on the original single. The B-side of the first single a song called Mind's Eye, is in the same psychedelic vein as Crazy One with lush instrumentation. It's an adequately interesting song for the time period. released another single but not with CBS, this time with a much smaller label called Major Minor. And this time they went by Ramesses and Selika. For the UK, the song on the A side was called Love You, and the song on the B side, Gold is the Ring. Love You is a strangely aggressive tune. I'm gonna love you. Oh, no. 
B-side of the second single, Gold is the Ring, is an ambitiously arranged ballad. It's pretty cool when it kicks in. Although the production is rather murky or muddy, it's too layered, too much racket. For this second single, in Germany and the Netherlands, the duo were billed as Ramesses and Cell, and the uncensored version of Love You, Screw You, was released. Screw You definitely fits the vibe of the song much better than the obviously toned-down version that was released in the UK. But, presumably, a single called Screw You would have been a controversial release in 1968. It Yeah. 
neither single did much business, so in 1969, as manager Harvey Lisberg tells it, Ramesses and Selkett turned up at the door of his flat on Park Lane in London, oddly dressed, vaguely unkempt, tripping on their own trip, a tad bit detached from reality, perhaps, or just sticking to the story they had created, hoping it still had legs. Whether there was a plan or not, they informed this potential manager, or he claims they did, that they were the reincarnations of the Egyptian gods and implored him to work with them. Lisberg at the time was most famous for discovering Herman's Hermits, a far cry from these psychedelic weirdos. Lisberg also managed successful songwriter Graham Gouldman. For whatever reason, he was seduced by this odd pair, and he finagled them a record deal with Vertigo. Then he sent them to Strawberry Studios in Stockport, where Lisberg was a stakeholder in the studio, to record an album for Vertigo. This was in 1970. And Harvey said, right, I've got a studio in, in Strawberry Studios. We'll make some, we'll make some uh, proper demo discs with your songs. And I'll get a couple of people to come in and play guitar and we'll put the drum thing on. And we'll make a little thing. To, it's proper there. I can take round to show people. So we did this with some members of Hot Legs. And, and and Eric Stewart was with Hot Legs. He did the um, controls. And I think Eric, um, uh, Graham Goldman played guitar. And I'm not sure whether uh, I met, we met long. But I know that we didn't. I didn't know about Hot Legs, I just knew that we were, we were in the studio with these people and they, and we were innocent, we sang all our things, we sang Quasar and don't you know, in our voice and everything, and Harvey took it round, and we everything went quiet for quite a while, and we wondered what was happening, and nothing was happening, and then suddenly we put on the radio, and there was this song come out. I'm a Neanderthal man, you're a Neanderthal girl, Let's make Neanderthal love in this Neanderthal world. And we stopped the car. And we said, that's our sound. Ways and wonders, you know. It was our sound. It was Hot Legs. It was from Strawberry Studios. It was the people that worked with us. They'd stolen our sound. So we got in touch, we rang up, and they said, well, it's not really like that. And it was a hit. And it was our sound. They stole it. So whether they felt anything i don't know the next thing i know oh yes we'll make your music we'll do you an album um harvey got a a, a with um uh, with vertigo um phonogram records with vertigo the label um he said and he's got a two album deal and so they're paying for the album so we'll make it at strawberry studios with hot legs as your backing group so i said well okay
Lisberg also enlisted some session musicians, a band, as a matter of fact, that Graham Gouldman was associated with, called Hot Legs, which also included Eric Stewart, Kevin Godley, and Lol Cream. Hot Legs would later become 10CC. A quote from Graham Gouldman, It was great. It was a really fine album to make. We would sit down on the floor with acoustic guitars, that kind of vibe. Very hippie and mystical. Ramesses had been offered the Moody Blues tour to, to front for the Moody Blues on their tour, and they wanted Ramesses. Well, I think with Hot Legs being our backing group, they refused. I think it must have been what happened. They didn't refuse. They said, well, you can't do it without us. So, you, you know, Ramesses is nothing without us. So we're going to go on it. We were devastated because that meant from that day on we had an album out on the market with a group now that wouldn't play with us. And we had these original music and things and they had really pinched our thing which they got a hit record with which should have perhaps been ours. And people would have heard about our music and they'd be, you know, they should have heard about our music at that time. And I still think they should hear about our music because we were really caring about what was happening to the world and how things were going. and. And it was very disturbing, and it really certainly disturbed my husband. And uh, he couldn't get over. And then, of course, that was a really big knock for him to think that this, these people had done that. Space Hymns was co-produced by Gouldman and some guy named Martin Raphael, who is also credited with performing sitar on the album. Some have deduced over the years that Martin Raphael must have been another pseudonym used by Ramesses, but Selkett later denied this, claiming that Barrington Frost and Martin Raphael were two different people. Space Hymns is, for the most part, quieter and more stripped down than those earlier recordings. Opening track Life Child slowly fades in. It's a funky song with prominent acoustic guitars, but the instrumentation provided by the future members of 10CC is tasteful and adds a lot. It's very well produced. I'm guessing a much more successful representation of what Ramesses was going for. Oh, 
word to comfort me. So that my spirit could be free. We left you hanging on a hill. Why won't we ever do? The second song on the album, Hello Mister, opens with just Ramesses and his acoustic guitar. Eventually the bongos kick in. The rhythm works for the song to a certain extent, but I like it more at the beginning without the percussion. And it never really goes anywhere, but it is short. I like it well enough. Up next on Space Hymns is a pretty folk song called And the Whole World. Soft and quiet and very well done. I like it. And I sat right down on the hard, hard ground And I knew this was the finding of myself And my life stood still And I looked around And I saw for the first time Who I am And the whole world started singing As the last, last sun went down And the whole world started laughing as the corn sprang from the ground and the whole world started crying as the rain came falling down 
Hey, Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain here. You caught me just finishing up some editing on Getting Real with John and Beth. I want to share my first experience with Factor Meals for you. I think you'll find this interesting because I bet the same thing happens to you. I had just received my first shipment from Factor Meals the other day, and I was excited to try one of the prepared restaurant-quality meals for myself. Anyway, I was working away and noticed it was very late, and it was my night to make dinner. I jumped up and headed to the kitchen, went to grab the ingredients for the dish I was going to make, and realized I was missing a prime ingredient. Well, I could make a run to the store, or I could make one of my new factor meals. <laughs> Actually, the choice was easy. I grabbed a cavatappi, an Italian-style pork ragu with garlic broccoli, heated the oven per instructions, and minutes later was enjoying a very delicious, nutritious, and dietitian approved meal. It really was everything factor meals said it would be. No prep, no mess meals. Factor meals are 100% ready to heat and eat. Take it from me and head to factormeals.com slash pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. That's Factormeals.com slash Pantheon50 and use the code Pantheon50 to get 50% off. Hey Pantheon listeners, Christian Swain again with something every podcast listener and music junkie needs to hear. As I'm sure you can guess, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I also listen to a lot of music, so having high-quality headphones and earbuds are absolutely critical to my day. Oh, and I have numerous pairs. In fact, I have a junk drawer of used devices that have bitten the dust, so I've tried them all. Recently, I was sent a pair of earbuds by Raycon, and the first thing I noticed was the cost. Uh, Looks like their products are about half the price of other premium brands. Okay, that's cool. And the reviews seem pretty stellar. Okay, checks that box. So I got my Raycon Everyday Earbuds, a nice packaging to open, and what I immediately noticed were the pack of ear tips for sizing. Uh, I'll tell you, I have small ear canals. Uh, I know, a flaw. So to see choices for the best fit, uh, especially while exercising, (laughs) oh yeah. And yes, they were immediately comfortable. Sound quality was great too. Plus I have three EQ options that I love because I like more bass in my music and less in the podcasts. Eight hours of playtime for the battery is great as well. Surround sound, noise canceling, and awareness mode all included. I think I'm in business, and I just realized I've had them in all day. Like I said, super comfortable. Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Up next, Quasar One, and it's a dramatic reinterpretation of their first single, Crazy One. The song has been rewritten with added parts. It's now very different and better until the middle section kicks in, which goes on way too long. The song is weird and it drags, but I like parts. You know that I touch the sun just for you, just for you. Quasar one, don't you know that I touch the sun just for you, just for you. 
You're the only one, Joe, is another short, repetitive song that seems more about the vibe than the arrangement or the melody. Similar criticisms could be levied against the next two songs, Earth People and Molecular Delusion. Pretty much psychedelic-type nonsense, just droning and weird. Finally, we come to the first single from the album, Balloon. This is much more of a song, at least. Though still rather repetitive, it is entertaining. Supposedly, an early pressing of the single was mislabeled Ballroom. is followed by Dying Swan Year 2000, an acapella waste of time, and that leads to a pretty corny, folky tune called Jesus Come Back. Sounds more like Peter, Paul, and Mary than, you know, Charles Manson. It's probably the most straightforward song on the album, but not great. Jesus. 
And this is followed by Journey to the Inside, which ends the album. It's just another pastiche of sound, a backwards backing track, the repeated phrase, what are you going to do with me, over and over, four minutes of this. 10,000 miles an hour plus, we streak across the sky like dust, and none of us know where or why. We're like a jewel in the sky Oh, what are you going to do with me? Oh, what are you going to do with me? Oh, what are you going to do with me? Whether this album is purposefully weird or just Ramesses' vision, parts of the album can be quite annoying, but some of the songs, like Life Child and Balloon, are solid pieces of work. Overall, the album is definitely an experience, and the strangeness of the backstory definitely contributes to the vibe, to the overall effect that this weird album has on the listener. As described by MexicanSummer.com, a quote, one-of-a-kind cosmic folk rarity, a bizarre and alluring message of peace and the supernatural. Contributing to that overall effect was the most expansive artwork that Yes! illustrator Roger Dean was ever allowed to produce. A six-panel fold-out cover depicting a church steeple, actually St. George's Church in Stockport, soaring off into the cosmos. On the back cover, of course, was a weird picture of the couple, Ramesses and Selket. The album was also given, of course, an odd, confusing inscription. Quote, This album is dedicated to the earth people who are unusual because they have begun to pause, look back, and wonder where they have come from and why, and where they are going to. The earth is a living thing just as we are and has a soul as we do. You look at the heavens through a telescope, reverse the telescope, and you have a microscope through which, if powerful enough, you would see almost the same sight electrons in orbit around their stars. In my father's house there are many mansions. We are most probably existing on a molecule inside the material of, perhaps, a living thing in the next size up. The rocket ship shape of churches probably dates back to Moses' visit to speak to God on the mountain and what he saw there. Following the unheralded release of Space Hymns, it did not recruit for them a wide audience of devoted followers. Ramesses and Selket moved to her hometown, Felixstowe, in Suffolk, to a house on Stanley Road where they lived together with Ramesses's mother. Here are some quotes from a neighbor of theirs at the time, Paul Holier. Everybody, well, all the hip dudes, knew who he was because of space hymns and the fact that he really stood out in a crowd, but few got close. He was a very intelligent and older man. Shit, I was in my early 20s, and he must have been the same age that I am now, 
and he didn't ever suffer fools gladly and cut quite a presence. He was a big, fit man. Louise and I lived 500 meters away in Montague Road, so we were kind of neighbors for a bit and started to really get to know each other. Ram, the randy old sod, was very interested in my missus, and she was a kind of beefier version of Cell and quite a lot younger. Ramesses and Selkut, the reincarnated Egyptian gods, seemed to have led a sort of domesticated life, living with his mother for a few years there, but he still had the shaved head, wore the long flowing robes, and he was still writing songs. Also, he still had his record deal with Vertigo. So, in 1975, there came a second album called Glass Top Coffin. Glass Top Coffin was recorded at Phonogram Studios in London, co-produced by Ramesses and a British singer and musician named Barry Kirsch. The final product ended up being lushly orchestrated on many of the tracks, and as the story goes... The orchestration was added at the record company's request, supervised by Rob Young, performed by members of the Royal Philharmonic and the London Symphony Orchestra, along with the Eddie Letter Choral, and supposedly a lot of this was added later and Ramesses was unhappy with this. It was added post-production and without his permission, as the story goes. From a review of the album by Jeff Perkins for blogcritics.org, with its rich orchestral arrangements, luscious production, silky smooth vocal performances, and spellbinding writing, Glass Top Coffin is wrapped within an atmosphere akin to a stage production. There is a cloying sadness within the album that is lifted by some beautifully scripted and sensitively written musical pieces. It stays just the right side of sounding overblown convincing enough to avoid becoming preposterous, and is lifted by its delicate, fragile, and oddly compelling atmosphere. I guess the answer as to why the album sunk with hardly a ripple lies partly in the date of its release. 1975 was very possibly too late. The musical world was on the cusp of revolution, and there simply wasn't any more room for someone attempting to explain the secrets of the universe on vinyl. Glass Top Coffin opens with a song called Golden Landing, which is pretty much completely reliant upon the orchestration, the strings, and the choir. So I'm not sure how much I believe that Ramesses was blindsided by and angry over the orchestral arrangements. The way this song opens the album does not seem to support that theory. Also, the cinematic way this song opens the album does seem to support one theory out there that Ramesses based the way the story of this album unfolds on The Wizard of Oz, an idea perhaps that Pink Floyd later stole?
Anyway, it's a weird way to start the album and way too long at six minutes. Definitely something I'd skip. The second song on the album, Long Long Time, is a nice song, pretty and compelling. Much more arranged and structured than most of the material on Space Hymns. Third song, Now Mona Lisa, is another straightforward song. This album is definitely more safely produced so far, devoid of the weirdness injected into the earlier recordings. But then we get to God Voice, which would have fit on Space Hymns. Same vibe, same religious or quasi-religious overtones, but it's not bad. Next up is Mind Island. More weirdness. So the album kicks off sounding like John Denver or something, but here we have what fans of Space Hymns might have expected. I can't say that I like Mind Island very much. Up next, Only the Loneliest Feeling. Also very weird. The backing track is dominated by what sounds like waves crashing. Ramesses' vocal can barely be heard, but the lyrics are very dark. You're frightened of dark places, and you're frightened of the light. You're frightened of your own reflections, and you're frightened now to fight. Only the loneliest feeling could ever bring you to this. The song is scary stuff, especially considering what the future held for Ramesses.
But next up, we get a song called Sweet Reason. And when it kicks in, it sounds like a doo-wop tune, although the lyrics and the vocal are ominous, almost frightening. The song gets mellow, but it picks up at the end with a big chorus. This is a very interesting song and well done. My favorite song on the album so far. Stepping Stones, on the other hand, is a mess. That mess is followed by another heavily orchestrated ballad called Sailor Man. This is a moving song and it feels really big. Next up, Children of the Green Earth, a mariachi-type ballad with weird lyrics, with this unnerving whispering in the background. The last few lines delivered by just Ramesses and his guitar are especially haunting. Come to the starfield, get there tonight. Come to the starfield, we'll get there soon. Come to the starfield, blazing with light. Come to the starfield, on the other side of the light. Children, 
children of the bright sun What makes your feet so fast to run Children, children of the bright sun What makes ideas so quickly, quickly come Children, children of the bright star What makes your eyes to see so far? Children, children of the bright star Will you know just who and what you To the starfield, get there tonight. Come to the starfield, we'll get there soon. Come to the starfield, blazing with light. Come to the starfield on the other side of the The album ends with the title track, the most rocking song on the album and the best song, but the imagery is disturbing, especially considering that maybe a year after the album was released, Ramesses committed suicide. If I had a glass-top coffin, I would see my friends all around. I would see the faces by my gravesite. I would see the smiles and the frowns. I want to be there when you come.
More memories from Paul Hollier, the couple's neighbor at the time of Glass Top Coffin. He was really upset by the cover of the album. I saw the first proofs and they weren't at all what he envisaged. The cutout was meant to show a man falling backwards into space, into the Horsehead Nebula, which when you open up the album revealed the bird. Well, he didn't like what they had done, but the artwork was completed and the record company said that's that. So Ram persuaded the record company to let him scratch, literally, the litho plates before the cover went to press. He sanded down that little circle that is lighter in the man's head that forms a part of that bird's shoulder, and it did look marginally better. His vision was that the man would look like he was in a spacesuit with a helmet on, etc. He was quite an artist, too, always fiddling with something in his garage. He made some really ace chessmen with resin and metal dust, which looked like metal, but were super light. He was a whiz with an airbrush, and he showed me how to do marquetry, you know, working with wooden veneers, etc. Needless to say, his efforts at making chessboards were a million times better than mine. Just after Glasstop Coffin was released, Louise and I moved to London. Ram and Cell were frequent visitors as they preferred to stay with us rather than in hotels. One day, he persuaded me that we were going to take a wall out of my flat and stick another doorway in. I wasn't at all practical back then, so was full of fear. Bless him, Ram took control and we did it. This got me started on a lifetime's DIY and building. He was quite a wheeler dealer, too. On one visit to London, I think it was the hot summer of 76, we were all out in his open-top, very flashy sports car, heading off to Hampstead Heath for a beer and a smoke. In the Euston underpass, the traffic stopped and we had to wait for the gridlock to clear. The car let out a kind of shudder, and Ram said, It's the something or other that's on the way out. I'm going to get rid of this car and get another one now. Within two hours, the deal was done. Ram did a straight swap, and we were all sat in a different flashy motor while Ram rubbed his hands in glee. That old car was going to seize up next time it did 10 miles. A third album, working title Skylark, went as far as cassette demos, but Vertigo passed on it. And we made this wonderful uh, take-up of our new album, and we were going to call it um, Skylark. We did the artwork, and we had the Skylark cut out, the bird cut out, and we, we painted this beautiful sky with lovely white fluffy clouds and beautiful blue through the sky box, skylark's body, uh, meaning again, like glass top coffin, is that life um, is like when you die, you don't die, it's, it's a glass top mountain. You see through the mountain and you go through the mountain. The coffin is just for your shell that's worn out and your spirit rises and go through the glass top mountain and, and the coffin and the skylark, the bird, was flying through into the sky and the spirit was released and so it goes into the universe and we join you don't die, it's a glass top mountain. When you die, you don't die, it's a glass top mountain. When you die, you don't die, it's a glass top mountain. When you die, you don't die, it's a glass top mountain. When you die, you don't die, it's it's a glass top mountain. When you die, you don't die, it's it's a glass top mountain. A quote from Selcat Ram got very dark. 
He wanted to go. He wanted us both to go. But I still wanted to live. Then I realized after uh, he, he, we couldn't do the third album, they told him that there wasn't going to be one. And he had been going in and out of depression a bit, but this sent him into quite a depression to think that, he, that, that they let him down on another album. And we worked hard and he used to paint. We would, he was doing oil paintings and things like that to earn a bit of money. He would have weeks and weeks indoors and not go out and they would just go out and it used to upset me and I used to get really down and upset and I couldn't seem to get him out of them. And friends would come round and they, they would realise that he wasn't himself. And um, then suddenly he would come out of them and he would be over the top somehow and and I would be it almost leave me behind and um, this wasn't like him not to be so depressed and so down and and it got to the stage where he said look I think we've got to go and I said what do you mean he said look I think we've we, we really should go we should end it all and I said you mean kill ourselves he said well not it's not like killing yourself, is it? You know that, and I know that. You know you don't die. You know you go through. I said, yes, I know that, but we're not ready to go through yet. We're not called for. We're not ready to go through. If we were ready, we would just die. So he said, oh, well, okay, but I, I can't live in this world any longer. It's not a nice world. I shouldn't have come here. I don't like, it's, it's not, I can't deal with it. I shouldn't have come. So that was left. And then he, he would go out and he wouldn't come out anymore and he would stay in for like weeks on how he wouldn't go out. He wouldn't even dress. He had this Chinese um, silk cream um, uh, dressing gown thing that he used to wear with the sleeves and he'd have this on and and he would like meditate or do things in it or he would sometimes do his artwork or whatever but he, he was really down and I could not lift him out of it and friends would come round and, and, and he wouldn't see them he would he refused to see them my nephew and niece they always came to stay with us and he liked them he liked those children and I mean, 16 years we were married. So those children, we used to do artwork with them, take them to the beach. We used to do all sorts of things with the children. Their mum and dad loved them to come to us. And this went on for most of their childhood and everything. And um, this, this week, uh, they were with us staying at Felixstowe. And he didn't come to the beach with us. We'd always go to the beach. I'd take the children to the beach and they couldn't understand what was wrong with him. And I was with the children, and he was wanting us to do what he said, to do it, to go. And the children were there, and I was so frightened that he was going to do it when the children were there. I mean, it was that serious. He was high, like I said, and he'd go low, very low. I went and slept with the children instead of sleeping with him. I slept with the children and I put scissors in the door because I was flat frightened actually. So you can tell. I didn't know whether he'd put something in our drink or what he'd do. So he went off and I was very, very down. 
I must tell you this at this time, I was so down, and if the children hadn't have been there, I don't think I'd have known what to have done. And my mother said, well, I think what I do is come back with me, uh, with the children, and come and, st and, and have some tea and things with me, and, and just come back, because he probably won't come back tonight and things, and you're not going to be here, and we, we, we come for the children, so you come back with us. And so I did. I said, yes, I think I will. I think I will come back because I don't feel well at all. So I went back with her and when I got back home I did tell my mother what was happening and she said well you're not going back there tonight, you're not going back there, you're staying here and that's it. She said no, that, that's something wrong, we'll have to say it but, but um, I must tell you at this point I did get him to the doctors and he was seeing someone at this point so I must tell you that I was trying to get him help. Um, so, but the problem was he came back that night and he did commit suicide and he took an overdose of paracetamol a lot and a neighbour went in and found him apparently with the bottles and everything there and they took him to hospital and the police came to see me to say that they'd taken him to hospital and, um, uh, and they pumped him out. And the next day, he he discharged himself, and he came out, and I never saw him anymore. And the next time, he went and did it in the car. Ramesses grew increasingly despondent for whatever reason or reasons, and on the second of December, nineteen seventy-six, at the age of forty-two, he took his own life. He was not yet a cult figure, his albums had been mostly ignored, and as such, his death went widely unreported in music circles until the early 90s, by which time his work had been rediscovered and people had started asking, whatever happened to that guy? Supposedly the Skylark tapes were burned by Selkett's jealous second husband, but I've seen multiple explanations for why the tapes went missing. A quote from Selkett, It doesn't matter. It's past. Take my voice out of it. <clears throat> Freezing on the inside, boiling on the outside. When I laughed, the girl cried. Just a case of hurt pride. All the bells are ringing, all the people singing, yeah. All the bullets flying, all the babies crying. This was the world. This was the
on the inside, boiling on the outside. When I laughed, the girl cried, just a case of hurt pride. All the bells were ringing, all the people singing, yeah. All the bullets flying, all the babies crying. Tissue. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would they shop? Would they shop? Would you kill? Yes. <laughs> My mom and dad. My mom and my dad. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, the Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at IntoHistory.com.